Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities in the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The fires that tore through the Australian state of Victoria in 2009 cost nearly 200 lives and ravaged a million acres. But two of the fires were caused by an arsonist. We ask what drove him to add to the devastation. And good luck getting a cheap holiday read in France. By law, new books must be sold at the list price. The idea is to support independent bookstores and to promote diversity in the printed word. But does it work in the age of Amazon? First up, though. Taiwan's President Tsai Ing-wen is in America as part of a diplomatic tour. But for the island's leaders, no such excursion is straightforward. Just 17 countries actually recognize Taiwan as an independent state. China sees it as a breakaway province. Ms. Tsai's visit would have angered China, even if she hadn't used the New York leg of the trip to insist that Taiwan would not be intimidated. Last night, police broke up scuffles between her supporters and pro-China protesters outside her hotel. America's State Department added to the delicate dance, calling the president's visit private and unofficial. Taiwanese presidents have this extraordinary existence because Taiwan is a friendly pro-Western democracy with lots of high-tech firms and bicycle manufacturers, and it's America's 11th largest trade partner. And yet the president of Taiwan is a pariah. David Rennie is The Economist's Beijing bureau chief and Chaguan columnist. Because countries are frightened of China, the vast majority of countries in the world will never let the president of Taiwan visit. America is big enough and strong enough that it doesn't care and does let them visit. But even America has to be unbelievably careful about the kind of the tiny details of what flag is flying or the people she's allowed to visit. So it's a real kind of vestige of Cold War oddity around this otherwise perfectly normal, friendly little country, simply because China insists that everyone treats them that way. And and what is it that Tsai Ing-wen is hoping to accomplish with this American visit? In theory, this is a visit to some of her allies. Taiwan still has 17 countries which recognize Taiwan, have full diplomatic relations. They're mostly small, very poor countries in the Caribbean, Central America. She's going to visit four of them this time. And at the front and the back of that Caribbean tour, uh, the Americans are allowing her to visit Uh, This is a moment when support for Taiwan is very strong, both in Congress and with some senior officials in the Trump administration. So you saw only this week the American government announcing over $2 billion worth of arms sales to Taiwan, which always makes China cross. Because America, although it doesn't recognize Taiwan as a country, is Taiwan's security guarantor. Basically, if China were ever to invade Taiwan, America should, Taiwan hopes, be there by its side. And yet any visit to America by Taiwanese leadership is going to enrage China and has, again, what have they, how have they responded so far? 
So it's been relatively sort of boilerplate language from the foreign ministry, uh, and you've seen complaints and, and sort of tut-tutting in the state media. One very nationalist state newspaper suggested that if these weapons, which are basically tanks and missiles, are delivered to Taiwan, that maybe China should offer to bomb them and destroy them unless they are removed. But that kind of Cuban Missile Crisis style scenario doesn't seem to be getting play elsewhere. But, you know, these visits, they are weirdly a serious business. It was back in the 1990s that an earlier Taiwanese president was allowed to give a speech at his alma mater, Cornell University, and China launched gigantic missile tests that actually brought two American aircraft carrier battle groups into the Taiwan Strait. So these are, you know, these are high stakes. But this also comes at a time when mainland China will have been rattled quite a bit by the protests in Hong Kong. I mean, what connection do you see between two restive regions that the mainland takes an interest in? Hong Kong is a very different case from Taiwan. It is absolutely legally part of China. Taiwan is not part of communist China, never has been. But what happens in Hong Kong is watched very closely in Taiwan. Those protests were really a rejection in Hong Kong of the idea that autonomy offered by Beijing under the slogan, one country, two systems, is working very well. That resonates in Taiwan because China's big offer to the Taiwanese is that they can also have one country, two systems. If they'll agree to come under mainland China's control, they could have lots of autonomy. So protests involving a million or more people in the streets of Hong Kong are a direct warning sign to Taiwan that one country, two systems might not be all that it's cracked up to be. And we've seen that playing out as Taiwan enters election season, because Taiwan, unlike Hong Kong, unlike mainland China, is a proper democracy with big, boisterous elections. And in this season, Tsai Ing-wen, the incumbent president, has actually seen a bit of a boost in her poll numbers because she was pretty tough and outspoken, defending the right of Hong Kongers to protest and saying, this shows us that we can't trust China's offer of autonomy. To the extent that her conservative rivals, who she's going to have to run against for the presidency, who are normally very keen on closer links with China, making money by seeking to link the two economies, they actually had to say some unusually tough things about the mainland just to kind of keep themselves in good shape with public opinion. Another complicating factor is that America is in this pitched trade war battle with China. Surely entertaining the Taiwanese president is going to add tension to that. It is really hard to know what the Trump administration's Taiwan policy is. There are a bunch of very senior people around President Trump who are lifelong supporters of Taiwan, and you can see their influence in these arms sales and probably in this longer visit. President Trump himself seems not to have a great interest in the fact that Taiwan is a democracy. He's famously not very interested in the fact that countries are allies. He thinks of allies as a burden. And so he has been very careful not to use Taiwan as a bargaining chip in these trade talks. But it all adds up to the fact that nerves are jangling in Beijing on so many fronts. So why should American voters care about Taiwan? Well, if they care about China having the right to dominate the whole of the Western Pacific, they should certainly care about Taiwan. Military planners, naval admirals, they talk about the first island chain, which is basically Japan, Taiwan, and then down into the Philippines, which kind of acts as a kind of barrier that hems in the entire Chinese coastline and for the last several decades, the American Navy has been able to use that island chain as a barrier to basically hem China in and to give America free reign over the whole of the Pacific. Having Taiwan as a kind of unsinkable aircraft carrier for America right in the middle of that island chain 
is incredibly important. And so what's your view on the likelihood that America's policies around attitude towards Taiwan will change? American policy is changing in two different directions, in Congress and in the Pentagon. As China becomes a more potent military power, the idea of having Taiwan as a base close to China to kind of hem it in is increasingly important. But President Trump is someone who is scornful of the idea of alliances, not very interested in the idea that allies are democracies. And so, you know, who knows? The deepest fear of the Taiwanese is that President Trump, they could wake up and he's sold them for a couple of ships of soybeans. What about those Taiwanese people, though? How do they view this visit, for example, and Miss Tsai being on the, on the, on the world stage and the, the dangers that might present? Taiwan is a very divided society, so her supporters will be pleased to see her getting a good welcome in America. That will be a relief, a sign that America is on their side. There's another whole half of the country that blames her for provoking China, that would be willing to have a closer relationship with China if that keeps them safer and improves the economy, frankly. And we're heading into an election in Taiwan in a few months' time. She's currently not very popular generally, so she'll be hoping that this visit gives her a boost back home. Thank you very much for your time, David. Thank you. What sort of person would do this and why? That's the question at the center of The Arsonist, a new book by Chloe Hooper. It tells the story of the devastating bushfires that swept through the state of Victoria in southeastern Australia 10 years ago, and of the man held responsible for lighting two of them. It's a tale with more than one villain, told in a uniquely Australian setting. Bushfires are something that haunts the Australian summer. Imogen White writes for our Books and Arts section. You expect them, but they're also extremely terrifying. They are something that reminds people just how powerful nature is and just how deadly it can be to not respect that. Many of the native plants, like eucalypts, are fire-prone and extremely combustible, and others depend on that fire to regenerate. So bushfires are an intrinsic part of life in the country. But the Black Saturday bushfires of February 2009 were far from every day. They were the most deadly in Australian history. It was the worst possible manifestation of all the anxieties that Australians have about bushfires and their vulnerability living in the country. There wasn't just one fire. Hundreds of fires raged through the state. 450,000 hectares of land were burnt to a crisp. Thousands of homes were lost, which meant there were enormous numbers of people who were displaced, had lost all their possessions, all their history, and 173 people died. It's incredibly difficult to imagine what it would have been like to have survived the fire. That's Chloe Hooper. She's the author of The Arsonist. People describe the incredible sound of the fire coming their way. It sounded like a fleet of jet planes landing on their roof. It suddenly would become black. So much smoke covered the sun that people couldn't sort of see in front of them. And then suddenly, like a sunrise, the fire front would emerge. And birds were dropping out of the sky and igniting and starting spot fires. Those who were inside their house had fire coming through skylights, under doorways. Skylights were melting. There was non-stop coverage in the press at the time. 
This morning, devastation beyond belief. The number of dead in the bushfire disaster rises to 100. Families were having dinner one minute and running for their lives Those the next. killed were trapped in their homes or incinerated in their cars as they tried to outrun the flames. Lists rolled down the screens on TV news reports of who had died and people could see that whole families had been lost. People were in a state of shock and bewilderment. And one of the biggest shocks was the fact that some of these fires had been lit intentionally. Many of the fires were caused by failures in the state's badly regulated electricity grid. But a man lit two of the fires on purpose. Ten people were killed in the blaze. In the aftermath of Black Saturday's devastation, I just basically couldn't understand how anybody could have done this. And I guess I I wrote a book which tried to find the answer. On the Thursday after Black Saturday, arson squad investigators arrested a 39-year-old man named Brendan Sokolock. What's your full name? Brendan J. Sokolock. And they initially believed that he was trying to thwart the police interview by playing the role of the village idiot. What does the J stand for? Can't remember. Okay. And later that evening, he made a partial confession. Put it to you that you lit two fires? No. In that area? No. I didn't light any fires. That one was an accident. I had no intention of it being one. But it caused a fire, didn't it? Yes. What you did? I know. My action caused a fire and that, but it was an accident claiming that he had been driving nearby where the fire had started and had been smoking. Some of his ash had been tossed out the window and he claimed that he hadn't realised it would start a fire. But the arson squad detectives believed that they had actually arrested a cunning serial fire setter. Brendan maintains to this day that he is innocent, although a jury found him guilty. And in your book, you dive deep into Mr. Sokolok's character and backstory. What did you learn about him? Brendan Sokolok had grown up in a coal community and his father worked in the local coal-fired power plant. But as Brendan grew up, this town was slowly becoming a rust belt as the industry was privatised. There's a very high level of unemployment now in this region Brendan, throughout his school days, was badly bullied. His mother claimed later that he would get off the school bus with faeces smeared on his back. And he became an isolated person who would be seen driving around the local hills collecting scrap metal. And what he couldn't sell on to metal merchants, he might take home and burn in his back garden. Brendan was diagnosed three years post his arrest as being on the autism spectrum. And what do you think drove him to to set these fires? It's possible Brendan lit the fire out of a sense of, as awful as it sounds, of boredom, of sadness, of frustration. Often revenge is an element of this. I mean, here was a town where he felt he'd been made to feel worthless all of these years. And yet also perhaps he felt if he lit the fire, he might be seen as a hero. He was the first person, one of the first people to actually call this in, which is very common with deliberate fire 
setters. So there was also perhaps the sense that he would save all of those people who had previously regarded him as the sort of village idiot. Do you think that you found the answer to your question about why someone would do this? I think in the end you can only uh, circle closer to the truth because in the end I don't think this man entirely knows why he lit the fire. But I do feel that I understand more about the circumstances that created the fire. Chloe found that people are more inclined to destruction in places where, as she puts it, high youth unemployment, child abuse, welfare dependency and poor public transport meet the margins of the bush. When the arson squad detectives first arrived in this town, they opened up their books and they found that there were 33 other suspected or convicted arsonists in the region, which is actually, there's a very small population. This is an area where fires are deliberately lit at a much higher level than other places in the state. And A consequence of the post-industrialization of this area has been an incredibly high level of unemployment, but also the social maladies that occur alongside people not having jobs. And there is a very high level of child abuse and of substance abuse. It's almost a kind of social and environmental problem come together. Increasingly, we are now seeing feral fires in places around the globe that never traditionally burnt. But we're also seeing fires which burn hotter, stronger and longer and with increased frequency. I think this is a story about post-industrialization and also climate change and how those, unfortunately, the kind of toxic combination. Chloe, thank you very much for joining us. Jason, thank you. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Aujourd'hui, maman est morte. Ou peut-être hier, je ne sais pas. Mother died today. Or maybe yesterday. I can't be sure. Few openings to French novels are as well known as Albert Camus' L'Etranger, or for those of us who struggle with French, The Stranger. French authors from the Marquis de Sade to Jean-Paul Sartre have made a profound impact on literature. But if you want to buy one of their books in France, it's going to cost you exactly the sticker price. Coming up to 40 years now, books in France have been heavily regulated, at least on the price side. So what you have is a complete ban on anyone selling books at a discount. Stanley Pignol is Europe business and finance correspondent for The Economist. And the general idea is that if books are sold for the same price everywhere, then people will flock to high-quality bookshops rather than supermarkets or, worse of all, in the eyes of some French people, online platforms like Amazon. 
How does that work in an age that contains Amazons that are, you know, that are known for selling things at discounts? Well, very simply, they're just uh, not allowed to. So there are some some small exceptions, but by and large, if you go to your local bookshop or you go to Amazon or you go to a supermarket, the same edition of the same book should be sold at the same price. Everybody is expected to make the same margin from the same book. So presumably we're talking just about new books here. I, I will still be able to get my dog-eared beach thriller, right? Ah, well, uh, there is the rub, Jason. And you have just uh, put your finger on a bit of a loophole that one company in particular, uh, namely Amazon, is trying to exploit. Because the law does not apply to secondhand books, and there is a thriving secondhand book sector. But the accusation that is leveled against Amazon mainly is that it is selling secondhand books, or what it says are secondhand books, which are in fact brand new. So that is a sort of backdoor way of offering quite hefty discounts. Now, this isn't necessarily done by Amazon itself, but it's done by people who are selling secondhand books through Amazon. The traditional bookselling lobby is arguing is that Amazon is, is flouting the spirit, if not the letter of a law, which has been really key to the French book sector uh, for the past 40 years. So Amazon has been in, in conversations with the, the cultural authorities in France, and it insists that everything it does is fully legal. It seems that the letter of the law is the only way that it, it really exists. I mean, this is this is a big loophole to jump through. Well, and, and there are several of these loopholes, actually. If you think about books in 1981, when this law was voted on versus today, it, it's a different model, right? You didn't have audiobooks that you have now. You didn't have digital books, nor did you have people publishing their own books. So all these innovations in the book sector have resulted in new interpretations of the law. Digital books in 2011 were just simply brought into the law. And now the secondhand book issue, the government is, has threatened to legislate if there isn't some kind of settlement uh, agreed between the different parties. What about the intent of the law, though? If it was to encourage you to head down to your local bookshop, are people still doing that? Yeah, so the intent of the law is twofold. The first is to promote small bookshops, and, and France has over 3,000 of them. The second one is this idea that you're promoting cultural diversity. So what tends to happen, if there are no restrictions on discount, is that blockbuster books get heavily discounted because those are the ones where the price competition is the most intense. So the Harry Potters of this world will be heavily discounted. Independent booksellers will not make a decent margin on those because they have to match the, the discounts of, of the big groups. And as a result, they will have less incentive to take a punt on, on riskier material, and therefore publishers will not publish this riskier material. So you end up losing cultural diversity. Whether this is true or not is the subject of some academic debate. But the French are very attached to this idea of, of cultural diversity. Bookshops in France are amongst the least profitable types of uh, retail operations out there. So the extent to which they have survived the onslaught of Amazon is, is up for question. What you do notice, though, is you don't have a lot of big book chains France uh, still consumes a, a, an awful lot of books. The question is whether people would consume even more if they could get them more cheaply. Stanley, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here on Monday.
Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities in the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com.